Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. On this episode of Most Notorious, Prohibition Agent Elliot Ness and his untouchables battle Al Capone for the soul of Chicago. And then in, beginning in March, they start this campaign of, of raiding their first raid is a mixed success where they're they're able to locate a brewery, but they're not able to make any arrests because they end up having to back their truck that they brought with them through the doors uh, that are locked and 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 were you know they couldn't batter their way through uh, as as easily as they expected. So after that, Ness has a couple of his men design a truck with a steel bumper on the front end of it, not a snowplow like you saw in the movie, but a bumper that could just drive straight through these reinforced doors and end up uh, arresting people inside uh, Capone breweries, which had never happened before. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me. It is so great to have as my guest today, A. Brad Schwartz. He is a writer and historian, currently a doctoral candidate in American history at Princeton University. The first book he wrote is called Broadcast Hysteria, Orson Welles, War of the Worlds, and the Art of Fake News about the infamous 1938 Radio Panic broadcast. He has also co-authored two books with Max Allen Collins called Scarface and the Untouchable, Al Capone, Elliot Ness, and the Battle for Chicago, and Elliot Ness and the Mad Butcher, hunting America's deadliest unidentified serial killer at the dawn of modern criminology. And he's here today to talk about that first book, about Elliot Ness and his battle against Al Capone's outfit in 1920s Chicago. So great to have you on. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. So your two most recent books star legendary lawman Elliot Ness. What is it about Elliot Ness that inspired you to write two books about him? It really came about as a result of my uh, childhood love of Dick Tracy. I think really beginning with the you know the Warren Beatty film, 
that I saw when I was a kid. And I was one of those weird kids who, you know, when I, I developed an interest in something, I wanted to know everything about it. And tracking down the original comic strips that Dick Tracy was based on, uh, you know, finding all the books that I could find about it. That's how I found my way to the work of my co-author, Max Allen Collins, who, who took over the Dick Tracy comic strip after the creator, Chester Gould, retired in the 1970s. And, and Max went on to write the strip for a number of years. He wrote the movie novelization of the Dick Tracy film from 1990, which was, I think, the first book of his that I, I'm sure it's the first book of his that I ever read. And it was sort of through uh, my interest in that, that I, I, I started reading more about the Prohibition era, about Al Capone. And uh, one day, and I, I have a very uh, rather vivid memory of this, actually, because um uh, I was a kid, I don't know, I was maybe 12 or 13. And, uh, my, my mom suggested I check out the movie, the untouchables saying essentially it's, it's like Dick Tracy, but real life. And, and little did she know, as I eventually discovered that, uh, you know, she was more right than she could have known because Elliot Ness, as it turns out, as my co-author sort of got from the, the horse's mouth from Chester Gould, Elliot Ness was the direct inspiration for the creation of the Dick Tracy comic strip. Uh, in the 1930s. And so I found it very fascinating that you had this real life person uh, who who inspired this fictional character um, and, and that there was this world, this prohibition era world that was so dramatic and so, uh, you know, larger than life, and yet it was real. And uh, my co-author had written several novels dealing with Elliot Ness, uh, including Road to Perdition, where uh, the graphic novel that Elliot Ness is a character in, even though he didn't make it into the film, unfortunately. So that I, I developed an interest in, in Max's work, really, because he had written so much about this world that I had become interested in as a kid and had, had written a lot about not just the Chicago period that people kind of think they know about, but the second act of Ness's life in Cleveland that nobody knows about. And so that, as I was reading his, his, his books, which are, are fiction, I mean, they're very well-researched uh, historical fiction. And I discovered a character that was uh, in Elliot Ness uh, that was nevertheless based in, in, in historical fact, that was very different from, uh, you know, the, the Kevin Costner movie from 1987, certainly different from the Robert Stack TV series, from the 1960s. And that was very different from what nonfiction books were available at that time, how Ness was characterized in those. Because the conventional wisdom, really after the, the Robert Stack show came out, this was a backlash to the, the Robert Stack show. And perhaps we can talk more about why that happened. But Ness had become such a legend that, that pretty much all of the books that were published about Al Capone um, that dealt with Elliot Ness at all would go out of their way to say that Ness was uh, more myth than legend, that he was a publicity hound, that he had nothing to do with taking Al Capone down. Uh, he was only interested in getting his name in the papers. And I knew from my own research at this point, I'm you know I'm in high school, maybe early college. I'd done some digging in the newspapers just because I was interested, uh, and from reading Max's work that 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 was not true at all, that there was a much more interesting character here in Elliot Ness than anyone had acknowledged. 
and uh, I got to know Max uh, mainly from going to book signings of his uh, from when I was a kid, and we sort of struck up a friendship. And uh, I, at the same time, was in the process of of turning my uh, senior college thesis at, at the University of Michigan into what became my first book, Broadcast Hysteria. So I was sort of proving myself as a writer and a historian. And was very exasperated by a lot of what was being written and said about Elliot Ness that I knew to be uninformed and, and untrue in many cases. And Max felt the same way because he had done even more digging in this than I had done. And finally, at one point, I just sort of, I was still in college at that point. I just said, you know, we need to stop complaining about this and, and we need to do something about it that, you know, we could join forces to write the proverbial uh, nonfiction book that reads like a novel, you know, the definitive account of, uh, initially it was going to be the story of Elliot Ness. It eventually stretched into two books, uh, the first one of which dealing with the battle with Capone. But but we really felt the need to set the record straight um, before this stuff got even more distorted. And so it was partly, to, in my very long answer to, to your question, it was partly this sort of childhood fascination I had with the era and with the detectives of that era. And then this sense, as I got older, that there was a a wrong in the historical literature that needed to be redressed. And that's what we tried to do over the course of, I don't know how many hundred pages the books ended up becoming. Right. Yeah. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover really had a lot to do with setting the narrative, right? Mm -hmm. uh, not only for lawmen like Ness and Melvin Purvis, but the criminals he took down as well. As an example, creating the myth of, of Ma Barker. Right. As this violent criminal matriarch to cover up her killing by, by G-Men. Yes. And it's, you know, and that's the irony because Hoover was, uh, because so much of his power as FBI director uh, stemmed from his public image. And he was very conscious of that and, and, and very careful in how the FBI operated to not only appeal to the media, but to frame how the media talked about the FBI. So Hoover was was very interested in popular culture representations of the G-men, but he he for that same reason was also extremely jealous that that the FBI be the only ones represented in that way. And and Elliot Ness uh for reasons as you know that are in the book was never an FBI agent. He tried to be. The story of of why he failed is is somewhat complicated in and of itself, but after Ness's death, when the Robert Stack TV show happens, Ness uh, posthumously is often misidentified or misrepresented as an FBI agent. And, and this is coming at a time in the 1960s when Hoover was at the height of his power, was working, working to a great extent with Hollywood and with television and, and you know, the FBI TV series and all of that. And Hoover was very exasperated with this television show that in you know several uh, specific instances early on, including Ma Barker, was giving Elliot Ness and the Untouchables credit for cases that uh, the real FBI had solved. And again, the real Ness was dead by this point. He had nothing to do with what was happening. But uh, Hoover and the FBI, we know from the FBI files, uh, were monitoring the show, were protesting uh, this rewriting of history, which, as you said, they were certainly guilty of rewriting history to their own benefit. So it's somewhat ironic that they would that they would complain about this. But um, 
that is is one element of why this sort of narrative took hold that Ness was a glory hound uh, who took credit for for other people's work because that's what the TV show was doing, uh, certainly without his knowledge. And you had a lot of people who were uh, you know who had been involved with you know the the FBI and the gangster era with the Mob Barker case specifically, who were still alive and who knew what the actual history was. And uh, were complaining privately and publicly about what this show was doing to the historical record. Uh, and Hoover and his FBI were a big part of that. So, you know, Hoover didn't really want to, to have much to do with Elliot Ness when he was alive. And then after Ness was dead, uh, his ghost sort of ended up haunting, uh, haunting <laughs> the FBI, uh, really even to this day in some ways. Um, so there's an irony there. There definitely is. So in the first few pages of Scarface and The Untouchable, you kind of alternate between the growing up years of Al Capone and Elliot Ness. And I was surprised to read that there were actually a number of, of similarities between them mm-hmm. in their formative years. Yeah, that was uh, one of the things that surprised us too. I mean, they both, they're, they're uh, four years apart in age. Uh, Capone was, was four years older. They both come from rather humble beginnings. I mean, Capone was from... Brooklyn, uh, Ness was from Chicago, uh, but you know Capone was the son of a barber. Ness was the son of a baker. Uh, uh, immigrant parents in both cases, uh, although both Capone and Ness obviously were born in the United States, uh, they were the sons of immigrants. And as was often the case in that generation, you know, around the turn of the century, when you had immigrants, uh, oftentimes you know Ness's parents were from from uh, Norway. Uh, Capones obviously were from Italy, uh, but it was part of that huge wave of immigration uh, in that period. And when you very often had these, you know, these first and second generation Americans who ended up on opposite sides of the law, because there were only so many ways if you were the son of immigrants to to get ahead in the United States, right? You could uh, you could enter politics, uh, urban politics. You could enter law enforcement, or you could enter illicit enterprise in the form of, of organized uh, uh, crime. Uh, both Capone and Ness had fathers who were legitimate businessmen who built businesses uh, on their own accord, but who, who struggled uh, and, and suffered setbacks, pretty severe ones in the case of Ness's father. And, and both Capone and Ness seemed to have decided that they, they didn't want uh, they didn't want to follow that more traditional path. Uh, they wanted more uh, wealth and, and fame and power in the case of Capone, more uh, excitement, and I think prestige in, in the case of Ness. And and both of them then fall under the influence of mentors who I believe were born in the same year, if memory serves. For Capone's, that's uh, John Torrio, who was this, you know, if, if there's a visionary uh, of organized crime, he's it. Uh, he was the the local godfather in Capone's neighborhood in Brooklyn growing up. Later, he's the one who's responsible for bringing Capone to Chicago. Uh, and Torrio was somebody who realized that you could take you know the the mafia form of of uh, organized crime that had developed in the old world, and you could combine it with this sort of corporate capitalism that was developing in the new world. And you could create this very powerful form of illicit commerce that would become a major social and economic force in America in the 20th century. And, And Torrio is somebody who 
had the idea that he could live his life like any other legitimate businessman. He could go home uh, at 5 p.m. and and live quietly with his wife uh, after spending the whole workday dealing in you know various uh, uh, forms of sin. And and he could be respected and he could be admired uh, and he could a- achieve more power and wealth uh, than would generally be available to an immigrant from Italy uh, in his position at that time. Um, and Capone found this very, a very attractive idea. Uh, he liked the notion that he could separate his, uh, his working life and his, his uh, uh, home life or his, his, his social political life be respectable in that way. Um, he was never as successful as Torrio was at separating the two because Capone's personality, his temperament sort of wouldn't allow it. One of the great tensions that is running like a thread through Capone's life is his inability to control himself in that way. And Ness, at, at, at the time that, that you know, Capone is, is, is developing his career, Ness falls under uh, the influence of a, of a brother-in-law, a much older brother-in-law of his, uh, by the name of Alexander Jamie, who was also an immigrant from Scotland, who became involved uh, with the early, what became the FBI uh, before, you know, it was known as the FBI, uh, and who, the Department of Justice, and who sort of like Torrio saw this new sort of career path in organized crime, Jamie saw law enforcement as this this new path that was opening up in the, tw- in the early 20th century, that as crime was professionalizing as uh, it was becoming more sophisticated, law enforcement and government was having to develop in order to keep up. And for an immigrant or the sons of immigrants, this was a way if you professionalized, if you treated crime, if you treated law enforcement as Ness uh, did throughout his career as a profession, not a job, you could advance yourself uh, if you were ambitious and, and sort of make a name for yourself in, in, in this new field. Ness would talk about, you know, saying that uh, uh, he looked around himself and, and, and realized there wasn't a lot of competition in this field, that it was sort of the coming field for a young man at that time. So Ness goes to college, which was not nearly as common as, as it is now. Um, he trains himself not just academically, but physically, uh, learning how to shoot, how to uh, do jujitsu, you know, modeling himself in many cases on Sherlock Holmes, the stories he read as a child and, and loved and sort of wanted to be a professional detective in the way that Sherlock Holmes was this scientific detective. And he's always following his, his, brother, uh, his brother-in-law, who was much more of a political operator than Ness ever was. Uh, Jamie was somebody who was always sort of interested in shaking the right hands Ness, his instincts for that were not nearly as good, but he ends Ness ends up choosing to go into the Prohibition Bureau at a time when it was notorious for corruption and incompetence and shooting innocent people, and and this is again before J Edgar Hoover sort of makes the G Man famous uh, before Hoover's FBI. Federal law enforcement had a terrible nationwide reputation, and and Ness, uh, with a degree from the University of Chicago, with all the prospects in the world, decides to go into this field because he knows that it won't take much to distinguish himself from the competition. Um, and he had the integrity, he had the work ethic, he was certainly intelligent enough and dedicated enough to do more than the bare minimum. And what's 
remarkable as you know we talk about the similarities between between Capone and Ness is is that in this period in the mid 20s uh when they're both starting their careers they end up living on the same street on the south side of Chicago South Prairie Avenue in houses that are uh mirror images of each other in Capone's case it's the home that he uh, buys for his family when he comes to Chicago um in Ness's case he's living with his parents uh, while he's getting his career started, Ness isn't pursuing Capone yet, but they're both living five miles apart on the same street, and it's it's an indication, I think, of how, again, the social dimensions of the immigrant experience in early 20th century urban America were so similar that you could end up with these these men from somewhat similar backgrounds on opposite sides of the law who were striving in their own way for similar kinds of social and and professional success. You know, I I think a lot of us, and you've already touched on this a bit, a lot of us, when we think of Elliot Ness, I'm sure Kevin Costner's face pops up in our heads. Me too. (laughs) Was Ness's personality similar to how Costner portrayed him, in your opinion? Was he that charismatic what do you think he was like to be around? I think that's one of the few, very few things that the the Kevin Costner, Brian De Palma movie gets right. Um, you know, there were some people who uh, who knew him uh, who were still alive at the time to see that movie and, and praised Costner's performance. The entire story and sort of narrative structure of the film is is almost entirely fictitious, but there are elements of authenticity. And so I think Costner is, is certainly one of the better, more authentic, more so than Robert Stack, definitely, uh, performances of, of Elliot Ness. I mean, he was very and, – and this is true of Capone, too, that, that you when you read uh, newspaper profiles or things that people write about them, people would say that, you know, who, who were aware of uh, their reputations even at the time in the 1930s. That to meet them, you would you would never believe that these men had done all the things that we know that they did. I mean, in Capone's case, it was because he was very charming and very sort of disarming, and it was very difficult to imagine him as a, a brutal murderer, uh, which he was. Um, in Ness's case, it was because Ness was so reserved and and shy. That's a word that people often use. He had kind of a weird sense of humor. Um, you know, almost a, a, a difficulty perhaps in, in dealing with people socially, uh, not a, not a, a real uh, awkwardness, but he was very reserved. He was very, a man that I think was difficult to know in a lot of cases, someone who had a lot of integrity, who was also very ambitious, uh, who hated guns. I mean, that's one of, one of the ironies, you know, that he, uh, Hated, even though he trained himself to be a good shot, he 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 disliked firearms to the point that he wouldn't carry one, even when he probably should have. When he was putting his life at risk, there's a story we tell in, in Scarface and the Untouchable about uh, him leading a couple of comrades on a raid of a, of a, uh, a probable Capone, uh, you know, warehouse. I think it was, and and they go in and they they have their uh, hands in the pockets of their jackets pointed like guns because they don't have have guns with them um, <laughs> as they go to arrest these these gangsters. So he's he's the kind of person who would do that. I mean, he was an adrenaline junkie in a lot of ways. Uh, he loved the thrill of going on raids. I, I got the sense getting to know him over, over the course of research in the project that 
I, I do think having the badge uh, or or the authority of the of the government and later the Cleveland Police uh, Department uh, behind him helped make him feel bigger than he might otherwise have done and and may have given him the courage to put himself in these in these situations somebody who was so again reserved you know not uh, grandiose in any in any way shape or fashion could nevertheless uh, when he's a federal agent, uh, you know, burst through, be the first one through the door of a brewery, uh, you know, with a firing a warning shot into the air, that allowed him to uh, do feats of daring do that he wouldn't, uh, that he wouldn't otherwise have done. Um, and he's someone too who really did uh, have a vision for law enforcement that was contrary, certainly to what was uh, the fashion in the early 20th century, and in many respects is even beyond what we think of now. Someone who really thought of uh, policing as a force for positive uh, social uplift, even social engineering in some ways, uh, that he ended up putting into into practice later on in in Cleveland. I mean, he was a, a progressive in the 20th century sense, someone who came out of that uh, tradition, which of course a lot of uh, the you know the turn of the century progressives were based in Chicago. That was the environment in which he grew up, and for all the benefits and the ills, uh, he had this sense that you could use law enforcement as a tool to you know raise the uh, living standards uh, for everybody in an urban center. That you could not just fight crime, um, but prevent it by improving social conditions. So he was, yeah, he was, he was very charming. He was very debonair. Uh, uh, women, uh, in many cases, found him exceedingly attractive. Uh, but it wasn't because he was this big, uh, brawling, uh, bellicose figure. It was because he was so reserved, so mysterious. Um, there's a moment in, in the first book where he's, I think he was being interviewed by a reporter from the Kansas City star. Uh, this is after you know the Capone indictments and, and when he's sort of famous as the leader of the Untouchables. And uh, as he's talking to this reporter, one of the federal agents comes in and, and hands him a, a pistol and says, you left this somewhere else. And Ness just sort of casually puts it in uh, his, his uh, desk drawer and, and keeps on talking. And it's, it's a moment that I think tells you uh, a lot about him because yes, he is performing for the reporter, it's that's not, uh, I don't think, an accident that that happened right at that moment. But it's a moment when, again, he's so, it's so hard to believe if you could meet him and talk to him that he would have been crashing these trucks through the doors of Capone's breweries, uh, that he sort of had to prove um, to this journalist that he was uh, everything that he was reputed to be. We'll be back in a hop, skip, and a jump. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. 
Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. One thing that it seems the movie got right... Was, was how it portrayed Ness's first foray as, as a prohibition agent, just coming into the, into the murky world of, of Chicago corruption. Mm-hmm. In, the film, in, in the film, he's this idealistic figure, really eager, you know, initially to bust up stills, send bootleggers scrambling, uh, put people in jail. But he finds himself in the movie and in real life, right? quickly stymied yeah and and that's sort of so then you get into the the parts that the uh, uh of the film that are fictitious i mean the film presents him as this outsider who's brought into chicago uh to clean up the town in fact you know as i said he was he was born technically he was born in chicago uh but in this far south southern suburb of chicago uh, roseland kensington and so even though he's from Chicago, technically, in some ways he is an outsider because you know Kensington at that period was very far from downtown, much more of a small town atmosphere. You know, sort of the place where uh, the the cop on the beat was uh, you know your pal and not a potential threat <laughs> to to raid your operations or somebody to be bribed. So. You know, growing up in Chicago in the early 20th century, like as close as you could get to a, a small town picket fence version of America, um, that's what Ness's upbringing had. And that's what made him, again, even though he's, he's a native son, a weird, you know, an, an uneasy fit in the city of Chicago when he's beginning his federal career. Because as you said, you know, his early, uh, once he starts in the, in the Prohibition Bureau in 1926, uh, his early raids are not successful uh you know he's he's uh, there's an incident if i recall where he uh has a tip on a on a still or a brewery uh tells everybody in the office and then when they go to raid it it's all gone and ness of course realizes that he can't trust uh anybody uh in the chicago prohibition office and he needs to play his cards closer to the vest as he would i mean you know secrecy that's the other sort of personal trait uh, that people talk quite a bit about, that the, the secrecy that he developed that would get him in trouble uh, in some of his later 
ventures in in law enforcement, but he learned to be very secretive to to not trust anybody with his plans, um, except for a select few, um, because he discovered very early on that in a city like Chicago, there was so much corruption that could, he could really only trust himself and and a handful of people who proven themselves. And so when he does end up uh, putting together the Untouchables team. It's made up of people who almost exclusively come from outside the city because that's what's what's the line from the movie? You know, if you if the barrel is rotten, you know, go to the tree. Um, that's what he ends up having having to do. That's what he learns. So even though he's he's a native Chicagoan, he's he's really not of uh, the culture of the city. That Capone coming from Brooklyn uh, was tailor-made for <laughs> in many cases. Capone is a much more comfortable fit in the city of Chicago uh, than Elliot Ness uh, would ever be. Yeah, yeah. What were some of the, the pivotal moments for Al Capone, both business-wise and personally, during his time in Chicago in the early to mid-1920s? A- at some point, Torrio hands over the business to him, correct? Right. I mean, it, it starts the the beer wars, the um, the the process by which Capone became, uh, you know, king of the city starts before he's he's even more directly involved, which is in in, in 1920 with the shooting of uh, the previous head of uh, what became the Chicago outfit, Big Jim Colosimo, uh, almost uh, certainly on the orders of John Torrio, because Colosimo who was a racketeer very much in the old school, who didn't understand, as, as Torrio did, that when prohibition goes into effect uh, in January 1920, on Capone's 21st birthday, as it so happened, uh, that this was going to create an immense new market for uh, illicit activity. Torrio, again, being the visionary, understood that uh, people weren't going to stop drinking just because it became illegal to manufacture, sell, or transport alcohol. They were just going to have to buy it from somebody willing to break the law. Uh, and and Torrio wanted to get in on the ground floor. Colosimo didn't see the uh, promise. Uh, he was rich enough and, and comfortable enough to not uh, want to take the risk. And so conveniently, uh, Colosimo ends up getting shot uh, in the vestibule of his restaurant uh, in, in 1920, and Torrio takes over the organization. And Capone then, who at the time, is uh, uh, he, had, he had been forced to leave Brooklyn because of an altercation with the, uh, the Irish mob uh, in that city. And Capone is a, you know, a rather unpromising uh, hothead. Uh, loudmouth, charming, but somebody who I don't think you would expect to be anything more than a you know the the bouncer or the enforcer that he was at that time, working for a, a saloon and 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 brothel on the south side called the Four Deuces. But because Torrio saw promise in him and made him sort of his his number two, his enforcer in in the early 1920s, as Torrio rises, Capone ends up rising as well and ends up learning from Torrio. As they're building this new kind of illicit enterprise and coming into conflict with other gangs in in the city of Chicago in the early 1920s, because Torrio, being the preeminent uh, corporate capitalist, wants to run things uh, as as professionally and and businesslike as possible. 
other gangs in the city of Chicago, uh, most especially the North Side Gang, led uh, by various <laughs> criminals who kept getting bumped off over the years. Um, they were not as polished. They were not as disciplined. They were still doing armed robberies and things while they were also hijacking uh, liquor shipments and, and brewing beer on the side. And this becomes a source of tension between the two gangs, between the South Side Gang, which became the outfit, which is Torrio and Capone, and the North Side Gang, uh, whose first major leader, Dino Banyan, uh, is killed probably on the orders of uh, the Chicago outfit. This really kicks off the beer wars of the mid-1920s when you have these, these open gun battles, these uh, assassination attempts on uh, leading figures in both gangs. Um, Capone, you know, in the mid 1920s, when one of these brief reform administrations comes into the city of Chicago with with aspirations to clean the place up, that's when Capone goes to Cicero, uh, which is a suburb on the west uh, west side of, of Chicagoland, takes it over pretty much uh, lock, stock, and barrel, um, rigs the local elections, and you know is running his his operation from uh, the Hawthorne Hotel, I believe it was. And the North Side Gang, you know, in retaliation, they they drive this fleet of cars with machine guns out the uh, uh, to 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 shoot up the, the the restaurant, the coffee shop where Capone was uh, at that time. He survives, um, but it's one of these major sort of escalations in this this ongoing war that's going on at that time. In uh, 1925, I believe it was, uh, there was an assassination attempt by the North Side Gang on. Um, Torrio. He's shot uh, by Bugs Moran, who was one of the successors to uh, to Dino Banyan. Uh, Torrio was was badly wounded, but survived. Uh, and after several months in a in a jail uh, hospital conditions, brings Capone in and and hands the business over to him. Um, you know, Torrio retains a. Uh, uh, sort of an emeritus role in the organization, and he, he, he would come back later on. But um, for all intents and purposes, in the in 1925, I uh, believe it was, it's been a while since we wrote the book, um, in early 1925, Capone, at the age of 26, becomes the leader of this, this enormous criminal enterprise, its day-to-day leader, chief executive. And... From that point on, he's sort of not just the number one target of the Northside Gang, but um, the uh, soon-to-be one of the more prominent um, figures just in the city of Chicago generally. So by 1927, the majority of Capone's enemies had been eliminated. Guys like Jaime Weiss, Dino Banyan, uh, the Jenna family was either killed or driven out of town. Mm-hmm. And this was due in large part to the professional killers he surrounded himself with. Guys like Jack McGurn and a duo nicknamed the Murder Twins, right? Scalise and Anselmi, yes. Uh, who famously, you know, there's this story, it's one of those stories that I don't know if it's true, but it should be, um, where Scalise and Anselmi would uh, rub garlic on the bullets uh, that they used uh, because that was supposedly was poisonous if the, if the shot didn't get you the poison would they were these sicilian assassins who had played both sides of the war uh, but ended up uh, on the winning side 
at least for a time, and uh, ended up. Perhaps that's the next question you're gonna you're gonna ask. But ended up on the wrong side of the boss uh, as he ends up having to exercise his authority because uneasy lies the head that that wears the crown, right? And and by um, establishing himself not just as uh, the leader of this immensely profitable illegal organization, but as an increasingly public figure, there's always uh, more and more people. Uh, you didn't mention Joe Aiello, but he's another who really want to, to take Capone down, uh, to shoot him, to poison him, to blow him up. Um, there's all sorts of plots in the uh, mid to late 20s into the, into the early 30s um, before uh, the feds end up taking him down. So, yeah, one of the most famous scenes from the Untouchables movie is Robert De Niro as, as Al Capone at, at a dinner with a baseball bat. How much of that scene is real and how much of it is fiction? That's a very good question. Uh, um, and it's not one that I think can be definitively answered. What we can say for sure is that it wasn't an entirely an invention of the screenwriter um, that, you know, there was, there were these, these bodies uh, of Scalise and Anselmi and uh, a third man, uh, uh, hot toad uh, Junta, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, who turned up uh, near Hammond, Indiana in 1929. Very soon after the bodies turned up, there was a story that went the rounds that uh, they had been plotting uh, to overthrow Capone um, and that uh, Capone found out about it. And with the help of one of his, uh, Capone's own associates, a man by the name of uh, Frank uh, Nitto, who the papers would know as Frank Nitti, devised this plan to hold a big banquet for uh, the three men uh, to sort of ply them with good food and, and drink. And then uh, at the height of the, the revelry, Capone would pull out a baseball bat and say, this is how we deal with the traitors and, and beat them all, all three into submission before they were finished off with gunshots. And as I say, you know, this is, it's one of those stories that uh, is impossible to disprove or prove in its entirety. There are certainly people who claimed uh, to have witnessed the planning or, or been involved um, in the circumstances, uh, either before or after the fact. Um, what we do know for absolute certainty is that the story started making the rounds pretty much immediately after the bodies were discovered and, and was deliberately spread by uh, the Capone organization. Again, whether or not it was true, it was spread to instill fear as a warning that this is what happens if you cross Capone. Because as Capone himself said, you know, in a, in a later interview, people who understand nothing else understand fear. People who work, I think he said, people who work with me aren't afraid of nothing. People who work for me fear nothing uh, except that uh, that I might be unhappy with them. So the story served a utility value for the Capone organization that made it worth spreading, even though, of course, Capone would never be uh, certainly charged or, or convicted of any involvement in that, in that crime. Um, so do I think some version of it happened? Uh, yes, I do. Whether it happened exactly as, uh, the rumors said, um, it's difficult to say. So by the spring of 1928, Chicago's Prohibition Bureau was 
overdue for a facelift, basically. Mm-hmm. Putting it mildly. <laughs> Old agents were let go or, or transferred, and a bunch of new guys came in, including this character named George Golding. The character is a good way to describe him. Uh, yeah, there, you know, as I, I sort of alluded to, um, the Prohibition Bureau from the very beginning was uh, set up to fail. It was uh, the first Prohibition agents were political appointees, generally people who were more interested in, in making money through bribery than um, enforcing a law that at, certainly in a city like Chicago was always immensely unpopular. So from the very beginning, it was a nest of just political hacks and corruption of, of all kinds. And so in, in 1928, yes, uh, the, the, the Prohibition Bureau kept bouncing back and forth between Treasury and Justice. I think it was still with Treasury at that point when they decided to bring in somebody who was uh, take no prisoner. His, his nickname was Hard Boiled, George Hard Boiled Golding, and he was going to beat the city of Chicago into submission. Um, sort of a first attempt uh, at doing what the Untouchables later successfully did, which was to bring in a team of outsiders who couldn't be bought, who couldn't be bribed. And to actually enforce this law and 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 bring these illegal organizations under control, but unfortunately, Golding was the one who needed to be brought under control because you know he and his people uh, were extraordinarily reckless. Uh, there were multiple instances of them shooting innocent people either accidentally or on purpose during raids. Um, they didn't build worthwhile investigations. They weren't really investigators. They were thugs uh, armed with guns um, in at least one instance where they were the guns were loaded with what were called dum-dum bullets, which were bullets that were uh, had a cross carved in the nose in them. So they would fragment inside the human body, which there's no there's no justification for a law enforcement officer carrying something that is designed to be lethal in that way. So these agents brought in with great fanfare, uh, ended up being a uh, you know a spectacular public relations uh, failure uh, for the for the Prohibition Bureau by 1928. But as a consequence of that, you know Ness and his uh, his brother-in-law, who's Alexander Jamie, who's still his patron at that time, they they end up being there to inherit sort of the wreckage of the Prohibition Bureau when Golding uh, was finally forced out uh, uh, and and. As this was all, this was all happening. Ness ends up, and perhaps this is what you wanted to talk about, ends up developing his first major investigation into organized crime, sort of under Golding, but but acting acting separately while Golding is is doing all this stuff and getting all these headlines for his outrageous behavior. Ness is quietly working with Alexander Jamie to build sort of his first major uh, case. Yes, I'd love to talk about that. So they basically teamed up to infiltrate a massive bootlegging operation in a town called Chicago Heights. Uh, can, can you tell us about Chicago Heights in the 1920s, um, where it was, what its importance was to Capone? Chicago Heights was even farther south of the city of Chicago. Um, it, it was a town that uh, was somewhat like Cicero, very corrupt, pretty much entirely taken over by the local mob, um, which was affiliated with the Capone outfit in the city of Chicago and which had turned Chicago Heights into a major production and distribution center 
for uh, illicit uh, alcohol, hard liquor. So there's a lot of stills, you know, it's one of those places where the prohibition agents would would drive around in their cars with the windows down and just sniff at the air uh, so that the, if they smelled the, uh, you know, the odor of fermenting mash, that's how they would, they would find stills. Um, but the local law enforcement was totally corrupt. The gang pretty much had the place uh, in the palm of its hand. And yes, Ness and um, working, he's, he's a junior prohibition agent. He's only been in the, on the job about two, two and a half years by this point. So he's one of a team, uh, not the leader uh, yet, but one of a team of uh, three prohibition agents and a uh, informant who had previously been affiliated with the gang, a um, man by the name of Frank Bazilli, who also worked as their driver. And the plan basically was that they, yes, that they would go undercover, essentially as as, as corrupt prohibition agents, that they made it known that they were in town and looking to make money and counted on the gang to approach them uh, with overtures to make a deal, to put them on the take, on the payroll. But in order to do that, uh, Ness and the other prohibition agents needed to know what stills they were protecting, right? So that's when, once they've met with the gang leaders, once they established their intentions, um, that's when they got the gangsters to sort of show them around and, and all, at all the production facilities, all the all the stills and distilleries that they wanted these corrupt, supposedly corrupt prohibition agents to protect. And um, that allowed Ness and his, his team not just to identify these illicit production facilities, but to try and figure out which law enforcement officials were on the take, who the members of the gang were, because the name of the game for building a corruption uh, prohibition racketeering case was establishing the existence of a conspiracy. And perhaps, if they could, tie it to the bigger bosses in, in the city of Chicago. Because it's important to remember that this is when we talk about uh, you know law enforcement having to professionalize in order to keep up uh, with the professionalization of organized crime. I mean, this is before the law had really been developed to reckon with this new kind of illicit activity. There's no RICO law. The conspiracy statutes are, are still fairly uh, undeveloped. And so Ness and the other prohibition agents had to be creative in building a case that could take down somebody like Capone, who, you know, didn't directly, except in, you know, in certain state crimes like murder, he wasn't uh, uh, directly taking uh, action in these in these bootleg conspiracies. He's not driving the trucks. He's not tending the breweries or, or tending bar. So how do you prove that he is the leader of this illicit organization? So Ness and these prohibition agents had to infiltrate the gang as, as much as they could to start building those relationships. Um, eventually, sort of the case breaks and all hell breaks loose in the city of, of uh, Chicago Heights. One of the gangsters, uh, Ness and his team were uh, dealing directly with, was, was is killed almost immediately after uh, you know leaving the police station on bond. The informant, Frank Bazilli, that uh, Ness was working so closely with, also turns up dead. And it's a moment where uh, Ness... Uh, it's it's a major seeming turning point in his life. Um, before the Chicago Heights investigation, and even during the early stages of it, his job is thrilling, it's fun, but from his perspective, there are very few consequences. There's a moment when they're uh, 
under uh, undercover in Chicago Heights, dealing with these gangsters. One of them who's standing behind Ness says something in Italian. Later on, Basili translates for Ness that you know he was asking because because Ness is asking for too much money. You know he's he's trying to play up his role as the hungry uh, uh, corrupt prohibition agent in order to to draw more information out of these gangsters. And so somebody behind him says something in Italian. Later on, Basili translates for him. He was asking whether he should stick a knife in your back. And it's one of the few moments in Ness's career when he when he feels fear, when he thinks that his life is really in danger. The death of of Frank Bazzilli later on, this man to whom Ness really believed that he owed his life, I think, in that moment, you know, seeing him laid out on the slab, shot in the head, that's a moment that brings home the seriousness of what he's doing, you know, what the stakes are. I think it hardens him because Ness is only, what is he, 25 uh, when this is happening. Uh, So he's still very young. He's still very innocent in some ways. He loses his innocence in that moment. It's probably the closest person to him that ever ended up dying uh, in as a result of his investigations because the, the, the sort of unwritten rule was that uh, law enforcement uh, federal agents generally wouldn't be wouldn't be killed by gangsters uh, because that would bring down even worse consequences on the gangs uh, but Bazilli's not a not a law enforcement officer he's a, an informant and uh, Ness and his fellow agents had been pretending to be corrupt, but taking money, which meant that they were now corrupt and and sort of all bets were off. So, you know, Ness uh, catches somebody following him, perhaps with intentions to kill him. Uh, Ness certainly believed that, uh, you know, his life was in danger as things in Chicago Heights were unraveling. Um, The tension sort of builds and builds and builds. And finally, in in January of 1929, the feds, uh, you know, led by Ness and these other agents, launched this absolutely massive raid on the city of Chicago Heights, beginning with the police station. Because the city is so corrupt that the first thing they have to do is put all of the cops behind bars so the cops can't warn all of the gangsters uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, that that their day has come. And then the agents spread out and you know round up dozens of gangsters. Uh, it's one of the biggest uh, law enforcement actions, certainly the Prohibition era. And they seize not you know, not just the rest of these people, but they end up seizing financial records that start to point the way very early sense toward um, the leaders of the Chicago outfit that gives the Treasury Department their first sort of serious uh, leads to investigate uh, those gangsters for income tax evasion. So it's a major uh, turning point in, that suddenly makes – it doesn't directly lead uh, to Capone's uh, downfall necessarily, but it makes it, – uh, it, it opens a door that had previously been closed and shows how competent, uh, dedicated federal law enforcement could actually take these gangs on in a, in a serious and systematic way. And it, it certainly gives Ness the career boost that when the time to directly investigate Capone in Chicago comes around, um, he is a credible candidate uh, to lead that effort. Back again after these brief messages. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I wanna teach you everything you need to know about US history, but I do so through stories. 
let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. From Fort Sumter to the Battle of Gettysburg. From the Emancipation Proclamation to Appomattox Courthouse. From the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Compromise of 1877. From Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. To Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. And we're the hosts of a podcast that takes a deep dive into that era, when a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We have again returned. So just a few weeks after this massive raid on criminals in Chicago Heights happens, probably the most infamous event associated with Al Capone takes place in a Chicago garage on February 14th. Mm -hmm. Would you tell us that story? What happened that day? It's yes, it's a bitterly cold uh, Valentine's Day, sort of the worst kind, you know, worst uh, example of winter in Chicago. When what it's it's a garage, as you said, on the north side of Chicago, uh, twenty one twenty two North Clark Street, I believe, uh, the SMC Cartage Company, and it's where uh, the North Side Gang, which by this point, as you as you said, has lost several leaders, um, is now being led by George Bugs Moran. Um, it's a place where the leadership of the gang would sort of meet, uh, the dwindling leadership uh, would meet uh, to discuss business. And there was apparently going to be a meeting there that morning. Um, several uh, leaders of the organization were there. When uh, what appears to, at least at first, to be a liquor raid uh, takes place where a cop car shows up, men dressed in police uniforms come in. Uh, line everybody up against the wall, um, and then 
two men with Thompson's submachine guns, uh, whether they're the men in uniform or not, we can't know. You know, the men are all lined up against the wall and they just mow them all down very uh, systematically and then finish them off with uh, uh, shotguns and, and probably pistols as well as they're lying on the floor. Um, it was an attempt to uh, decapitate the leadership of the North Side Gang, planned uh, to the last uh, detail as uh, Capone outfit uh, assassinations often were. Even to the extent that you know, once the once the gunfire has happened and people outside have taken notice, what they then end up seeing is what looks like uh, men with their arms up being marched outside by uniformed police officers holding guns uh, into a uh, in, into a car, who then can disappear into the into the snowy uh, morning. So by the time somebody goes in and sees the carnage inside the garage, the killers are are, are long gone and their guys as, as police officers. So no one, of course, would ever be uh, charged or convicted for this murder. Certainly Capone had means, motive, and, and the opportunity to do so. Um, but we know, uh, again, you know, with this sort of this thread of the story that we, we keep coming back to, the professionalization of, of crime and law enforcement, that the bullets taken from the bodies and the shell casings found at the scene um, thanks to the the work of a pioneering forensic scientist uh, by the name of Calvin Goddard, those uh, pieces of physical evidence would later be connected to two Thompson submachine guns that uh, were were found in the possession of a killer by the name of Fred Burke, who we know uh, worked for Capone, was one of the uh, this this hit squad um, known as Capone's American Boys, who. Uh, were involved in in multiple uh, killings, uh, apparently or allegedly ordered by the Capone outfit, uh, and used the same one of the same Tommy guns to kill a gangster in in New York by the name of Frankie Yale, who was somebody else who had been an, an ally of Capone before he became a liability. So Burke would end up being convicted and, and go to to prison for for uh, the killing of a police officer in Michigan. But based on the physical evidence, based on confessions and and testimony of associates that that came out after the fact it is uh highly probable uh, exceedingly probable if not certain um that uh al capone and his organization were behind this in an attempt to get rid of their final major rival who was george bugs moran uh unfortunately for them one of moran's uh, associates who was going to be there at that meeting on february 14 1929 looked a lot like him and the uh uh, lookout that the Capone organization had planted in a building across the street, which is now incidentally a very uh, uh, good uh, pizza place uh, in, in the city of Chicago. I highly recommend it. Um, mistook this this gangster for Moran and and sent uh, the killers in too early. So Moran, who had been late uh, getting his haircut allegedly, sees what he thinks are police coming up to his headquarters and turns around and heads the other way. So the you know, all of the careful preparations to kill him end up ironically uh, saving his life. But having the rest of the leadership of the gang and and a couple of uh, more or less innocent bystanders as well uh, killed uh, just decimates the North Side leadership. They never pose a significant threat to the Capone organization. Again, the result of this event, the St. Valentine's Day massacre, is that Capone ends up sort of being the the preeminent uncontested uh, leader of organized crime in Chicago for a rather brief period of time. 
but it comes at an exceedingly high cost to him, which is that uh, the photographs, uh, the headlines that are published, you know, in the, the hours and days after this crime are so shocking and, and so disgusting that uh, even Chicago, which uh, has long sort of prided itself on its on its cynicism, on its uh, hard-boiled character, uh, where people had before 1929 had this attitude that, well, you know, if the gangsters are just shooting each other, which was never entirely true, but if they're just shooting each other, what's the harm? Um, suddenly people can no longer sort of laugh off uh, the consequences of prohibition and all of this corruption uh, that it had that it had brought about. Um, so Capone, very soon after, uh, even though he would never be uh, convicted of the crime legally, it, it's uh, uh, publicly uh, assumed or asserted that he's behind it. It becomes a symbol of everything that he has brought to the city of Chicago and the uh, inadequacy of uh, state and local law enforcement to do anything about it. And so it really then becomes the impetus for uh, a new uh, presidential administration uh, that that begins just under a month after the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. That's when Hoover Hoover is inaugurated, uh, Hoover having run on a, a platform to make prohibition work. So that becomes the impetus for his administration, for his Justice Department to take a serious look at uh, uh, putting Capone in jail, because if the the city of Chicago, if the state of Illinois can't convict him for murder, uh, the federal government will use whatever uh, legal weapons it can muster um, to take him out one way or the other. Do you think that for Capone, one of his biggest mistakes was that he was such a publicity hound? You know, he loved having pictures taken of him in public places, uh, golf outings, baseball games. Do you think he would have survived longer as a gangland boss if he had kept a lower profile, like men like Meyer Lansky did, as an example? Absolutely, yeah. I think, and you know, as you say, the the uh, the proof of that is uh, all of his contemporaries who were arguably even more successful, certainly for a longer period of time, because they shunned the spotlight. Um, it, you know, Capone, he's a very, uh, very sort of contradictory, very fascinating quirk in his character, that he's somebody who clearly wanted to be loved, who wanted to be a, a big shot, wanted to be recognized as a big shot, wanted fame and attention um, and everything that, that comes with that, uh, and was willing to uh, pursue it uh, by breaking uh, any law that, that, that stood in his way. One of the details that sort of I think uh, demonstrates his character most effectively is you know when he gets to there's a story I think it was when he gets to Alcatraz or or maybe it was when he's in prison in Atlanta but one of the first things he does when he's out on the yard is he goes around and introduces himself to all the other convicts and shakes their hands and says my name is Al if there's anything I can do for you just let me know like that's he's 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 much more temperamentally, he was much more of a politician than a businessman. Um, even though he had great executive ability, and even though he uh, certainly was a, a success uh, uh, commercially and financially, the money is always secondary to the attention, uh, the acclaim. And so, yes, he courts 
attention in ways that if you are uh, a criminal are very, very stupid and, and, and self-defeating, um, you know, so after the, the murder of Jaime Weiss, for example, you know, that's when he holds one of his first major press conferences and says, uh, you know, what a terrible thing has happened to my friend Jaime. You know, you think about his poor mother. It's, it's terrible. Uh, I certainly didn't have anything to do with him, but uh, he, he's, his ambition got the better of him, and it's just so terrible that these things have, have to have to happen to, to good people. You know, it's um, later on as he gets more and more uh, successful, more and more powerful, and frankly, more and more megalomaniacal. He's giving interviews to people like Cornelius Vanderbilt, where one of the final interviews Capone gave before going to prison uh, is this just absolutely bonkers interview in I think it was the American Magazine, where we quoted at length in the book where he talks about how birth control is one of the worst things that happened to America and we need an American Mussolini and Vanderbilt, of course, coming from the, the, the Vanderbilt family. So, you know, Capone is always people like you and me, we got to stick together. We got to, uh, the depression by that point, and of course it hit the country and saying, you know, people like us putting himself in that class, we need to open our pocketbooks or else this country is going to fall to communism. Like that's, he really saw himself being in that class uh, of of uh, wealthy industrialists, no matter how he made his money, and he just made himself so prominent, internationally famous. Uh, he's on the cover of Time magazine uh, in March 1930, I think. First criminal to to get that honor, as far as we know. Um, that he just becomes the most uh, visible symbol of everything that's wrong with America in the prohibition era. And so for someone like Herbert Hoover, president, who particularly after the stock market crash needs political victories <laughs> because his, his administration proves itself uh, certainly incapable of doing anything about the economic uh, situation the country's in, getting Capone becomes a very uh, uh, attractive way to show that uh, the Hoover administration can actually get something done. So yes, absolutely, Capone made himself unnecessarily, from his perspective, uh, a target, um, not just for other gangsters, but ultimately for uh, the feds. So the citizenry of Chicago is anxious about the increased violence in the city, and many blame Capone for it. And eventually, a group of businessmen decide to take matters into their own hands, a group that would be forever known as the Secret Six. Mm-hmm. What do we know about them? What were their goals? And what were the methods that they employed to achieve those goals? Well, they were, in many cases, the actual, you know, the, 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 the economic elite that Capone like to imagine himself being a part of, but uh, who very much didn't want uh, someone like that in their club. Um, so there's there's an element of uh, of of that sort of uh, rivalry uh, between established money and and the nouveau riche certainly at play. It's more more immediately triggered by an incident, uh, a shooting. Uh, I believe of a construction foreman um, during a, a construction project uh, near the, the University of Chicago that brings home to the business community um, the direct threat that all of this lawlessness and corruption presented to them. Because again, for most of the 1920s in particular, this was understood as a problem of gangsters shooting gangsters. Um, suddenly, if uh, innocent bystanders are being killed, 
more or less in this in the case of the St. Valentine's Day massacre. If uh, businessmen are facing extortion or, or uh, violence um, and having to deal with racketeers who are infiltrating the building trades, um, suddenly this becomes more of a direct threat to legitimate industry. And if, as became the case, all of this uh, press, all of this international attention, you know, Hollywood is making the first gangster movies in the early, uh, or the first uh, sound gangster movies in the early 1930s, all this attention that Capone specifically was bringing to the city of Chicago uh, was making it a bad place to do business. People didn't want to invest in the city. They didn't think they could walk safely through the streets of the loop uh, if gangsters are driving around spraying machine gun fire out of cars. And so uh, the shooting uh, of this construction foreman becomes the impetus for a group, uh, a shadowy group of uh, uh, wealthy Chicagoans, more than six, the secret six name becomes legendary in this period, um, led by a guy uh, by the name of Robert Isham Randolph of the same family uh, after whom Randolph Street in Chicago is named, which tells you how, how uh, established he was in, in the city of Chicago, which in and of itself is, you know, as, as urban centers go, uh, was a fairly new player on the American scene. Certainly old money in Chicago is not very old compared to a place like New York. But Randolph then puts together a coalition of business leaders, most famously people like Samuel Insull, uh, who was soon to uh, face a uh, significant legal troubles of his own once his, his empire collapsed in the Great Depression. Um, other uh, elite uh, business figures who gave money to uh, this private police force that Randolph was putting together, essentially with the idea that if the cops and the prohibition agents aren't going to protect us, we're going to protect ourselves. And uh, Elliot Ness's brother-in-law, Alexander Jamie, again, political operator that he was, saw this as an opportunity and, and resigned from the Prohibition Bureau to become the chief investigator for this private police force um, uh, established and paid for by the wealthy of Chicago. You know, Randolph was someone who had a had a high appetite for daring do, someone who loved these sort of underhanded espionage methods. Also somebody who was a great storyteller and a, a, a skilled um, manipulator of media coverage. So it's always difficult to determine whether what he was saying was true or whether what he was saying was exaggerated. Certainly we know that the Secret Six did things like establish their own speakeasy, as a listening post uh, for, you know, sunk, I don't know, tens of thousands of dollars into setting up an actual speakeasy to try and listen in on the gangsters. Um, they dealt very, with gangsters in various capacities, you know, um, arranging the return of, of money that had been stolen from one of the, in one of the big, uh, biggest bank robberies in American history. Various espionage and you know uh, illegal uh, uh, surveillance activities on people who were uh, gangsters or suspected of gangster affiliations, but really the the main uh, influence they had in the the uh, effort to ultimately take Capone down was financial, in providing uh, financial resources, uh, you know, money directly to people like Elliot Ness, to the uh, treasury uh, tax investigators who, who were building the income tax case against uh, Al Capone, um, that, they, that money that would not have been available uh, through official government channels, particularly as the depression got worse and worse. And so, you know, when one noteworthy example, uh, one of the key witnesses in the tax case, the treasury, the treasury agents were building, 
um, the Secret Six, in order to protect him, you know, to make sure that the gang couldn't kill him, arranged for him to go on a very long sort of uh, cruise uh, to South, a round trip cruise to South America, so that he would be away from Chicago and and uh, inaccessible to the mob um, until he was needed in court. Um, so those sorts of things. Um, you know, the Secret Six ended up collapsing very uh, uh, spectacularly in scandal, um, and it, it damaged Jamie's reputation severely um, once some of their more underhanded methods uh, were brought to light. Um, but it's an example of how in that you know, 1930, 1931, 1932 period, when uh, several forces in Chicago ended up aligning themselves against Al Capone, when his uh, his activities and his notoriety made him so toxic that uh, just about everybody in the city of Chicago, uh, even members of his own organization, as it happened, wanted him out of the way because he had become so bad for business. And the legitimate business community were um, at the forefront of that effort. You write that um, at one point, a, a Capone associate named Gus Winkler admitted that he had gone to Frank Nitty with an offer to fix Capone's trial, mm-hmm. but Nitty refused the offer. Yeah, that's just one example. You know, there's there's all these indications, all of these hints, um, you know, that certainly people in Capone's organization, um, Frank Nitto or Nitty being uh, uh, the prime beneficiary, were at the very least not sorry to see him uh, go away. One of the key, uh, another key witness at Capone's tax trial, who sort of apparently is going against the gang by testifying against the boss, uh, years later turns up in a very uh, comfortable uh, job at a a Miami um, establishment that is directly affiliated with the Chicago outfit, not the sort of post you'd, uh, you'd want a traitor to your organization to be in. We can talk about the great uh, informant uh, associated with with the Capone mob that uh, in, in many respects was responsible for breaking uh, open the you know what became the successful tax investigation into the Capone outfit um, the lawyer by the name of EJ O'Hare who was not a mob lawyer in the sense that he defended Capone or his organization in court uh, but he was an attorney who had come to control the patent on the mechanical rabbit that was used in dog racing. And that uh, brought him into association with the gangsters who operated those tracks in and around Chicago. He was somebody who would talk about, um, you know, it's you can make money with gangsters uh, without becoming a gangster as long as you sort of separate your business and, and, uh, and, and other relationships. That, of course, never works out as well as people seem to think that it will. Uh, certainly didn't work out that way for O'Hare. But at a certain point, as the tax investigators led by a treasury agent named Frank Wilson were, were digging into the finances of Capone and Nitto and these other people at the top of the Chicago outfit, again, after sort of Elliot Ness had inadvertently opened the door for them, uh, that leads them to O'Hare. And that leads them to to put pressure on, on, on O'Hare, uh, because if he won't help them build a tax case against Capone, they can certainly build a tax case against him. We, we suggest in the, in the book that that the the common uh, explanations for O'Hare's behavior that he was you know trying to ensure that his son wouldn't get in a life of crime and, and you know or turn against the gang for various reasons are not convincing that it seems much more likely that he was playing a double game in the sense of of steering the the tax investigators 
toward Capone and, and, and toward elements of the business that were more or less expendable. So that once the feds toppled Capone, as ended up happening, uh, there would be much less appetite to go after the rest of the business. So uh, even though Ness and other people were very interested after Capone's conviction in, in rolling up the, the outfit as a whole, there was very little political will for that after Capone's conviction. So O'Hare um, becomes uh, the key player, you know, the person who helps Frank Wilson find uh, the major witnesses who uh, on the eve of the trial alerts Wilson to this plot to bribe Capone's jurors. Basically in, in, in at several key points in that investigation ensures that Capone uh, would be convicted. Uh, and, it, and it turns out, uh, it, it seems more likely than not that it's in uh, the best interest of the organization that this highly public figure uh, be dealt with um, so that O'Hare uh, and, and, and Nitto and others uh, could continue to make a great deal of money um, while Capone was, was cooling his heels in federal prison. We will return once more in just a moment. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Serial killers, strange disappearances, unexplained mysteries, terrible disasters. I'm Nate Hale, and in my show, The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle, or about the history of people drinking blood to stay young, or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris, or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. In my show, The Conspirators, I take you on a journey through some of the darkest corners of history, where you'll hear about the folklore, myths, and misconceptions behind some of the darkest events that ever happened. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. And we are back again. So once Alexander Jamie left the Prohibition Bureau to work for the Secret Six, that's when Elliot Ness really comes into his own. He, he comes out from under the shadow of Jamie, and he is chosen to head up something called the Capone Squad. Right. I mean, Jamie at first suggests him as... Uh... Uh, the head of uh, the, the, the Prohibition Bureau in Chicago. Ultimately, unsuccessfully, Ness is perhaps too inexperienced. The job goes to, to somebody else more approved of by the 
by the leadership. Um, but several months later, uh, the question comes up because the idea comes directly from uh, President Hoover that they could put together a, a team of uh, prohibition agents who are, you know, not uh, corrupted, who are, are separate from the political machine in the city of Chicago, and who could then directly go after these gangs, uh, their revenue streams, uh, build financial and other evidence against them. And Jamie, uh, as the former head of the Chicago Prohibition Office, uh, after Golding uh, did himself in, and now as the head of the Secret Six, puts forward his brother-in-law, um, essentially arguing that that if Ness is in charge of this organization, um, then we can have this coordinated effort where the special prohibition force and the Secret Six and the Treasury Department, everybody's going after Capone at the same time, which again is a very new thing. I mean, we nowadays... Uh, as federal prosecutions have become more sophisticated, this has become the standard tactic to go after, uh, you know, drug kingpins or racketeers of any sort of kind. This was the first time that this had ever been done. So they're writing the playbook as they're doing it. And Ness, uh, by that point, and this is late 1930, he's 27 years old, uh, was put in charge of a special prohibition unit tasked with uh, bringing down the Capone organization. Uh, so he puts together a team of, you know, initially it was only uh, five or six. Later, it expands to about ten agents. They're they're filtered in and out. You know, Ness uh, has high uh, standards. He wants agents who are like himself in in many respects, with a high appetite for for danger. Certainly, men of integrity, men with particular skills uh, that would be useful to the organization. So he has somebody who who's what he called his pencil detective who can gather all the evidence that they're they're building into a case report that would lead to the basis of an indictment he needs a wiretap expert he needs a driver he needs uh, people who uh, can can go undercover who can who can follow gangsters around track them through the city manpower shortages are endemic so initially he takes whatever he can get but uh, over time some Agents fall by the wayside. Some stay with him for the entirety of the investigation, but he builds a team who are are suited to to the task at hand. And they spend several months in the early part of 1931 wiretapping, uh, following uh, Capone's beer trucks, which are driven pretty openly through the streets of Chicago to try and find their distribution points, their their breweries where they store their barrels. And then in, in beginning in March, they start this campaign of, of raiding. Their first raid is a mixed success where they're, they're able to locate a brewery, but they're not able to make any arrests because they end up having to back their truck that they brought with them through the doors uh, that are locked and, and, and were, you know, they couldn't batter their way through uh, as, as easily as they expected. So after that, Ness has a couple of his men design a truck with a steel bumper on the front end of it. Not a snowplow like you saw in the movie, but a bumper that could just drive straight through these reinforced doors and end up uh, arresting people inside uh, Capone breweries, which had never happened before. So they start very aggressively. You know, the, the uh, consequence of this, of all of this aggressive raiding that they're doing in, in 1931 into 1932, is to cut off really the, the primary income stream of the outfit. At a time when uh, they're already suffering um, 
financial uh, setbacks as a result of the depression, you know, which is constricting uh, uh, business everywhere, uh, illegal or otherwise. And at a time when Capone is facing a tax investigation where several of the top leaders are, are going away on prison sentences of various lengths. So uh, he's not making his money through beer, which is the primary financial driver of, of uh, the outfit. I mean, you could cost something like $3 to, to make a barrel of beer, which they then sold for 55 which is an enormous profit margin. You can't sell those, those barrels of beer. You can't post bond for men who are arrested uh, when they're uh, in these breweries. Uh, you can't uh, pay bribes to police and uh, federal officials and any number of people who uh, are essential to greasing the wheels of business in Chicago and, and keeping the illicit enterprise running. Um, money is the glue that that holds the entire operation together. As Alexander Jamie said, without that, it, it started to fall apart. But the primary purpose of, of what Ness and his, his uh, untouchables, as they ended up being called, uh, were doing from the beginning was to, to gather evidence to build an indictment, uh, which they did, designed to show that Capone was involved in this enormous conspiracy to violate the National Prohibition Act, even tying in evidence from the Chicago Heights case and other raids and, 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 and uh, uh, seizures of beer trucks that had happened going back 10 years. Uh, Ness and his agents sort of tied that all together in an indictment that because it wasn't the case that ultimately ended up going to trial, uh, has sort of been forgotten. Uh, but it's a major, uh, very innovative, uh, you know, landmark moment in the history of law enforcement. Uh, a, a, a forerunner of, you know, the RICO law and the racketeering laws that are now on the books that weren't back then. Um, they were having to figure out creatively ways to use the law to to hold gangsters accountable for things that normally would be difficult to prove as crimes. Um, uh, so that becomes a, you know, a major turning point in the history of, of uh, uh, federal law enforcement um, that I don't think Ness, certainly not uh, before our book came out, uh, was ever given the proper credit for. Did Ness ever meet Al Capone face to face? He did. That's one of the when I said that there were multiple uh, books and 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 revisionist histories that had had uh, attempted to denigrate his uh, Ness's role in the Capone investigation, one of the things that always came up was that Capone didn't know who Ness was that that they'd never they'd never met. Um, and there was a moment uh, that was one of the things that I, I came into the project believing to be true, uh, or at least uh, you know open to be convinced, but but expecting that uh, it would be disproven. Um, we do know that they, they spoke on the phone. Famously, there's a moment, and it's one of the things that I, would, I, would, I, I certainly did not uh, expect to find any corroborating evidence for, but we did, um, that there's a moment that, that Ness had talked about in his memoir where they, they needed to move all of these beer trucks that they had confiscated from one warehouse to another. Um, and so Ness uh, called Capone in his headquarters at a certain uh, and said, look out your window at a certain time of day uh, tomorrow and you'll see something interesting. And when that time rolled around, Capone looks out his window and sees Ness and the Untouchables driving all of these beer trucks down uh, uh, the street uh, uh, right by uh, Capone's headquarters. And again, you know, for, for years, Ness was the only source for that. Later on, we were able to uncover other 
people who remembered that happening at the time and who had talked about it before before Ness's book was published. So that's the first and, and only time they apparently exchanged words. But later on, in, in May of 1932, after Capone was convicted uh, and and was going to be taken from the Cook County Jail, which has actually just been just recently been demolished, I, I heard, to uh, the train station, uh, Dearborn Station, uh, just a couple blocks away from Ness's office building in downtown Chicago. Uh, where he was going to be put on the train to be taken to the federal penitentiary in uh, Atlanta. Um, Ness was among the uh, agents who uh, accompanied him and guarded him on the drive and then through the train station. And uh, he's listed in the newspaper um, as among the agents. There are multiple photographs, which are in the the paperback uh, edition of the book uh, that show the two of them together. And uh, there's also newsreel footage of it. So I find it sort of incredible that, that multiple books have been published saying they never met, specifically denigrating the claim that, that Ness was among the agents uh, guarding Capone on his, on his trip to, to Dearborn Station. When we have multiple, like we didn't, you know, these aren't uh, photos that were, were in somebody's drawer for 70 years. They, were, they had been published in the Chicago Tribune. Uh, he's been there the whole time. People just didn't didn't care to look uh, until we we noticed him. One of the things in your book that I found quite humorous, uh, the the press, of course, called Capone Scarface, but his friends and associates had a very different nickname for him. Snorky, yes, uh, which was uh, meant to be sort of elegant or or uh, a snappy dresser. Uh, yeah, that's the name that Ness and his agents, when they were listening in on on the wiretaps, uh, that's how Capone would be would be referred to, and that's apparently how Ness's agents, sort of among themselves, uh, started talking about him. Um, but yeah, Capone hated the name Scarface. Uh, certainly, it's not something that anybody would have used in his presence if they wanted to to see another day. But really, I think in large part, thanks to the, the film that came out in 1932, uh, that was later more famously remade uh, by Brian De Palma with, with Al Pacino. And that becomes, um, you know, the iconic uh, name that's, that's forever associated with Al Capone. What did Capone think of his portrayal in, in that movie, that 1932 movie? I don't know if, because that came out... Uh, that was went into release after he was uh, in prison. So I don't, I don't know if we've, we know how he, he reacted to that film specifically. There was certainly before that, there was an article in variety, the, the movie industry uh, trade paper that talked about him watching uh, other gangster films and sort of laughing about that. He enjoyed them, but he found them silly and you know not not realistic at all capone certainly before the 1932 scarface had been the model for multiple gangsters most famously you know uh, edward g robinson in in little caesar and robinson is one of the people who attended uh capone's trial to to observe him uh and to then then perform more authentically uh in in gangster roles uh, and one sort of you know, one, one interesting thing that came out of the research is that, you know, you watch those old films 
and uh, particularly from you know 1930 1931 1932 that sort of that that cycle of films little caesar the public enemy scarface uh there's a film of the secret six and then you would read uh some of the actual wiretap transcripts which are currently in the national archives in chicago that ness and his men like their names are on them they're you know ness and, and others directly recorded from listening to their wiretaps on capone's operations and the way the gangsters talked is very similar to, uh, you know, the dialogue in those movies saying phrases like, you know, you dirty rat and things like that. Um, so, you know, we, we may from watching, uh, more recent, uh, uh, portrayals and things like boardwalk empire, you know, we think that they use stronger language uh, than they may have done in real life. Uh, and that perhaps the, those gangster films are a more certainly of, of the dialogue and the idiom are a much more authentic, portrayal than certainly I would have expected uh, before I read their actual words. Interesting. So during the trial, the defense basically tried to portray Capone as a, as a gambling addict, right? That was how they tried to explain away those exorbitant amounts of money he, he made and didn't pay taxes on. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I mean, one of the one of the things that people forget, because this is one of the first successful attempts to prosecute a, a racketeer, a gangster for income tax evasion, people forget how weak the tax case against Capone actually was. Because certainly back then, you had to, it wasn't enough to prove that somebody was simply living behind their means. They had to establish uh, that Capone had received taxable income uh, and that he then not paid his his taxes on it. And they never, uh, really beyond a reasonable doubt, the feds never proved that uh, Capone had, uh, th that, that any of these profits went directly to him. They could test it. They had testimony uh, regarding this ledger that had been seized in a gambling raid that shouldn't have been allowed into evidence because the statute of limitations had passed, but they had a, a friendly judge. Um, they had a lawyer, they had a, a letter that Capone's, one of Capone's attorneys had put forward trying to settle his tax bill with the government that again, under the statute of limitations, shouldn't have been uh, admissible. And they had all various pieces of evidence that Capone was, uh, Capone's organization was doing a fair amount of business, but actually demonstrating that he'd made the money was, was a much more difficult thing to do uh, when all of this was handled in cash with aliases. Uh, and, and things like that. So there were very various uh, avenues that the defense uh, could have and, and should have used and, and may have been more successful if they had used. Um, but Capone, for all of his financial resources, did not have very effective lawyers. And again, it gets to the question of whether certain uh, elements within his organization really wanted to see him go away. But instead of taking various lines of attack uh, that we know were open to them at that time. Yes, uh, the defense essentially conceded that he had all of this money and um, that he shouldn't be taxed because uh, of his enormous gambling losses, which were neither here nor there because gambling uh, losses can only be deducted from your income uh, that you've won from gambling. And so simply proving that Capone had lost a great deal of money only ended up uh, uh, helping the the prosecution make its case that he uh, he must have gotten all this this money from somewhere. But uh, on a strictly basis of strict uh, you know uh, legal interpretation of the law, 
that shouldn't have been enough to convict. And yet it was. So Elliot Ness goes from a relatively unknown agent to becoming what you refer to in your book as a cultural hero and one of the most celebrated lawmen up to that point in American history. Was he able to leverage his popularity, this attention, in a positive way for himself? Well, he certainly, he certainly had the opportunity to do so. Um, and that's, I, this is something else that gets to his, that gets to his true character, I think, because, you know, he, when, when Capone is indicted in June of 1931, first for income tax evasion, and then for the prohibition charges on the, on the basis of the indictment that Ness put together. Before that happens, um, Ness had been doing his work largely in secret. There had been uh, moderate news coverage of the raids, but um, nothing anywhere near the level of what would happen. After the indictments came down, uh, the Justice Department, and, and particularly the prosecutor, George E.Q. Johnson, who was running this sort of whole effort, made made a deliberate effort to promote Ness uh, and his untouchables as the, the face of that effort. That's when the untouchables name really came into popular use. It came out of uh, you know interviews that Johnson, uh, the prosecutor, gave to the press emphasizing that Ness's agents had been offered enormous bribes by the Capone organization and had turned them down. The, the, the origins of the, the Untouchables name actually has to do with um, Gandhi uh, in, in India, who had been working with the Untouchables of India around the same time. And it had to do not initially with their resistance to bribes, but that they were seen as Untouchables in Chicago because they weren't playing the normal games of corruption. They were sort of the, the local law enforcement kept them at arm's length. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with them. They were untouchable, just like the untouchables of India. That's initially how it, how it started being used within the organization as a joke. Prosecutor Johnson is the one who then takes the name to the press and says, no, they're untouchable because they can't be influenced. They can't be bought. They can't be bribed. And so, as we discussed earlier, the terrible reputation that federal law enforcement had in the early Prohibition era uh, that that Jagger Hoover would would later be working against as he was building up the FBI. Johnson, by promoting the Untouchables, was making one of the first efforts to try and rewrite that public perception to put Ness and uh, these agents who generally remained anonymous in, in the press, uh, except from Ness, put them forward as an example of what good federal law enforcement should be. And Ness allowed himself to uh, be the face of that effort. You know, after the indictments come down, that's when he starts giving interviews. You know, he was ordered by the Justice Department to promote his efforts. And and so, you know, there are stories of him inviting uh, photographers and reporters along on later raids. Um, uh, he wasn't doing that to aggrandize himself. He was ordered to do so because the federal government knew that it was fighting a, a PR war as much as it was a legal one. Uh, and this, you know, it's those, those are the newspaper articles that inspired uh, a young cartoonist named Chester Gould to create a comic strip about a similar detective in a city very much like Chicago going after a gangster who looked very much like uh, Al Capone. So that's Dick Tracy comes out in October of 1931, right around the time Capone goes on trial. So this is all happening at that, at, at, at the same time where Ness is suddenly famous. Um, he's offered the opportunity to write articles about his experiences 
to promote himself uh, for his own sake. You know, you mentioned uh, earlier uh, uh, Melvin Purvis, who's sort of uh, a few years later would become famous as the man who got John Dillinger and who, and who spun that uh, bit of notoriety into uh, a career in, in the public eye, or at least tried to, and who became uh, uh, famous, so famous that, that Hoover ended up forcing him out of the FBI because he rivaled uh, the fame that the director had. Ness had a similar opportunity to do that in 1931, and he didn't. Um, he turns down the opportunities to write about himself. He never seeks to monetize his fame when he could have. And he ends up suffering a, a career setback because he stays dedicated to his job. After Capone goes to jail, after even Prohibition is very clearly on its way out uh, into 1933, Ness kept going after the mob in Chicago, kept enforcing a law that was not only unpopular, but sort of on its last legs. And ended up after the repeal of prohibition, really in a career dead end in a in a in an agency that was not uh, that did not offer very many opportunities for advancement. So if he had taken some of those opportunities that were uh, pre- present for him in 1931, uh, his entire the entire trajectory of his life may have been very different. And I, again, I think that 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 puts the lie to some of the claims that have been made about him that he was a glory hound that he only cared about seeing his his name in the newspapers, uh, because when he had the opportunity to really uh, uh, cash in on that, uh, he didn't. Oh, uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about. We didn't really talk about his girlfriend and later wife, Edna. In the Untouchables movie, Ness's family plays a kind of an important role in the in the plot, but that's kind of sped up, right, for, for the sake of the story. In real life, he wasn't to the point where he had a full-blown family when he was in the trenches battling Al Capone's outfit. Yeah, it's uh, certainly the fact that he has children uh, in the film um, is a major plot point and a major vulnerability that you see. The film's version of Frank Nitti, which has, you know, that's one of the more absurd parts of the movie, the way that it handles Frank Nitti. Just as an aside, I, I, w- I was fortunate enough to meet... Um, and to interview some of the people, some of the, the last living people who remember Elliot Ness in the final part of his life when he was living in Pennsylvania in the 1950s. Um, and I, I interviewed a gentleman um, uh, who is no longer with us, who just died uh, in the past year by the name of John Regis, who knew him quite well in the 50s. And I asked him, have you seen the film versions of you know Elliot Ness and what do you think? And the first thing, the first thing uh, Mr. Regis said was he sort of laughed and shook his head and said, "The part in the Untouchables, when he throws that guy off the building, that's just ridiculous." You know, that this guy was so <laughs> uh, so opposed to violence that the idea that he would throw somebody off a building uh, uh, struck him as absolutely absurd. Um, and obviously, the real Frank Nitti came to a very different uh, a very different end. But um, nevertheless, yes, Ness was. Uh, he, he was not married when he began his career as a federal law enforcement. He actually got to know uh, his, his wife-to-be, Edna Staley, uh, because she, I think they had some, they came from the same part of Chicago. They may have known each other as children. Uh, but she was working in the Prohibition office uh, as Alexander Jamie's secretary. And so 
that's how they sort of got to know each other seriously as adults, um, uh, how their relationship developed. Um, she ended up uh, uh, being a, a victim of George Golding's unwanted advances and, and ended up being one of the uh, 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 female uh, members of the Prohibition Bureau staff who registered a formal protest of his activities and finally got him forced out of the agency. Unlike in the film where she's just this sort of domestic presence, she was involved in, in Ness's professional life during sort of the more uh, dangerous parts of his work in, in Chicago Heights. Um, but after they got married, her career ended as, as frequently happened in those days. And uh, she did become a less active presence in his professional life. And he, you know, he was always a workaholic, always someone whose uh, dedication to his uh, career um, could have personal costs, uh, large measure why he ended up being married three times. So his, his relationship, particularly into the later 1930s after he left Chicago and, and, and began his work in Cleveland uh, with her really suffered where she sort of uh, you know, she would she would be stuck at home while he was off having these adventures, and 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 she wouldn't see him for you know who knows how long. Um, so that ends up being a, a one of the tragic elements of of his story, where he you know in some sense appears to lose interest uh, in her as she becomes less and less involved in in his career um, until she finally ends up uh, uh, leaving him and, and, and divorcing him later in the 1930s. But they never they never had uh, 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 children together. Ness ultimately ended up adopting a, a son with his third wife um, near the end of his life. Uh, so he he didn't have uh, uh, children in the Capone period, like the movie uh, suggests. And one of the you know he, when Ness goes on to at the later part of his career, when he's finally convinced by. Uh, financial necessity to collaborate on a, on a memoir, um, you know, which is, again, more accurate than many sort of revisionist historians have given it credit for. Uh, but the one, the one uh, element that we know he fictionalized, and again, I think it says a lot about his character, is that he claims uh, that the woman he was married to in the 1950s when he was working on the, on the book uh, was his girlfriend and fiance and wife in the 1920s and, and 1930s, when of course they didn't uh, meet until many years uh, uh, after the fact. So that's the one thing he was uncomfortable with and and hid even from his co-author on that project, who didn't know until I think after Ness died uh, that there had been two previous uh, Mrs. Nesses before the one that he knew. Interesting. And he never saved a baby in a baby carriage, right? <laughs> no. As it rolled down a staircase. No, uh, that uh, uh, that scene actually owes more toward the the famous uh, uh, Soviet uh, silent film uh, Battleship Potemkin. I think that's where they got that that bit about the baby in the carriage going down the steps. Um, that has no. I mean, while it is true that you know there was. Uh, uh, there was a bookkeeper who uh, uh, Frank Wilson, the treasury agent, uh, had to go to great lengths to find. Um, so that, I guess, was the sort of inspiration. Uh, but my understanding is the initial the initial screenplay for the the movie um, there was going to be this big shootout on a train, and that was you know that was how they were going to get to the bookkeeper. Um, but for whatever budgetary reason, they couldn't get a train, so they had to come up with something else. And Brian De Palma, again, thinking back to 
uh, Battleship Potemkin had the idea that uh, um, they would uh, use the the train station in Chicago, and it's it's a it's a an amazing um, piece of filmmaking, but it has absolutely no <laughs> relationship to anything that happened in real life. Right. <laughs> so, for people who want to know more about you, about your work, where should we direct them? I uh, have a website, uh, abradschwartz.com, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z. And I'm also on Twitter, uh, at abradschwartz. So you can check me out there. And the books, of course, are uh, Scarface and the Untouchable uh, and Elliot Ness and The Mad Busher. Well, Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Again, I've been speaking to A. Brad Schwartz. He, along with Max Allen Collins, are the authors of Scarface and the Untouchable, Al Capone, Elliot Ness, and The Battle for Chicago. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.